Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, and the refugee crisis as a result is shaping up to be a huge concern. This week, the United Nations said that more than one million people have already fled since Russia began invading last week, and the numbers are expected to just keep rising. Here in the United States, the Department of Homeland Security said that they will grant temporary legal status to Ukrainians living in the U.S. They'll extend that for 18 more months. The good news right now is that Europe is also opening its doors when they had been more reluctant in situations past. For more on how Europe and the U.S. are handling the influx of Ukrainians, we'll speak to Laura Jakes, diplomatic correspondent at the New York Times. When all is said and done, it could bring as many as 4 million Ukrainians outside of their country looking for some kind of shelter or refuge from this invasion. And universally, people are welcoming these border countries' acceptance of the Ukrainian people. Refugees need to be taken care of. I don't think anybody disputes that. So while we are seeing that happen today with the Ukrainian refugees, that's not what happened in 2015, for example, when a mass of people from Syria, elsewhere in the Middle East, and even in Africa were trying to get some refuge in in Europe. And these countries basically closed the door on them. Yeah, and it's a very interesting situation where, you know, we're hearing from some of these other leaders of these other countries And uh, in particular, uh, I guess he was the chancellor of uh, Austria. He said, you know, this is more of a neighborhood thing, neighborhood help. You know, there are neighboring countries right here. That's why we're more willing to take them in right now. Right. So there are a couple of things at play here, and it's not for me to judge what is true and, and what is not. But it is absolutely the case that some geopolitical strategy is happening in the way that these Eastern European or byway countries that have in their history had to suffer some of the Soviet Union's invasions or atrocities that resulted in mass migrant or refugee crises. This is a way for them to push back on that policy that we're seeing now, that they have done this in the past. In 1956, there was a Hungarian refugee crisis. Austria took in very many of those people, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, In Czechoslovakia, a similar uprising was crushed by the Soviet Union, which caused a refugee wave. And these countries have historically taken in refugees that were forced from their homes as a direct result of Russian or or Soviet atrocities. It is also true that the people, the Ukrainians who are being taken in by these countries now are white. They are Christian. They are European. Even some of these leaders say that they are more willing to take in people who are fellow Europeans than they are from other parts of the country. But we've seen over the last several years, and especially we saw it manifest in the 2015 crisis, a sense of xenophobia, a sense of otherism, a sense of nativism in countries that did not want to take in people who didn't look like them, who had different cultures. Some of the argument at that time was that this influx, um, and I think something like 1.3 million people sought asylum in Europe from the Middle East and Africa in 2015 and 2016. And, And yes, that stretched a lot of these European budgets. 
These were people who needed shelter, food, education, health care, and not all of these countries were able to provide that. And it created this backlash of nativism in some of these countries. We're talking about how a lot of these countries are starting to accept Ukrainians as refugees through all this. We heard Airbnbs are going to be offering free housing to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. What is the U.S. doing in response to all this? Obviously, it's a lot harder for them to come all the way to the United States. That's why they're obviously settling in some of the nearby countries in the hopes that they can return home later. But what is the Biden administration doing on this front? Well, the Biden administration thinks that this is a crisis that will be mostly limited to Europe's borders. And the deputy high commissioner for refugee for the United Nations, Kelly Clements, I interviewed her today. She said it was so localized at this point that most of the Ukrainians are trying to stay close to their border, that even if they come into Poland and Moldova, that they want to stay close to the border so that they can go back into Ukraine and go back to their homes as soon as they're able to. That's going to depend largely on how long the fighting lasts or whether their homes exist So at the time that the fighting is over. But at this point, the Biden administration is sending tens of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid to refugee agencies, to the UN, to other relief organizations and NGOs. But they are not at this point going to create any kind of separate channel to allow Ukrainians into the United States, much in the way that was created for something like 75,000 Afghans who were taken in by the United States after Kabul fell through the Taliban in August. They're considering creating a special pathway to temporary permanent residency in the United States for Ukrainians who may already be here, but whose visas might run out in a matter of months. These could be students, these could be workers, these could even be tourists or relatives who are in the United States visiting. And certainly there's a discussion that these people should not be sent back to a war zone, even if their visas expire. And so there may be a pathway to let them stay and not be deported. Well, this is going to be the ongoing issue, depending on how bad the violence gets, how long this whole thing lasts. Um, So we'll be keeping an eye out what happens with these Ukrainian refugees. Laura Jakes, diplomatic correspondent at New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're seeing cases of COVID dropping and mask mandates starting to go away. And it does seem that we're finally moving on to this next phase of the pandemic. But how many people have actually been infected with the coronavirus? A new analysis of blood tests that reveal antibodies from infections estimates that 140 million people have come down with it. That's 43% of the country that has had a natural infection. For more on this and how a majority of children have also been infected, we'll speak to Dan Keating, health reporter at the Washington Post. So this analysis that was just released on Monday is part of what's called their seroprevalence surveillance. So seroprevalence refers to how prevalent or how frequent antibodies are in people's systems. So this is not based on getting tested for COVID or knowing you had COVID or states reporting COVID cases. This is just 72,000 samples of blood that was collected for reasons other than COVID. So someone went for a medical checkup or they were getting medical care done for them, whatever reason blood was drawn. The CDC contracts with those big blood laboratory companies in the country. And when they do the regular blood testing, they also will do an antibody test and then hand the results over to CDC. Not with the person's identifying information, but it just has like age and state. So then the CDC can figure out just from this big sample uh, about how 
what proportion of people in the country have had COVID. So what this means is you had enough COVID that your bloodstream has antibodies. So it doesn't mean that you were just exposed and maybe got it in your nose, but never caught it. It means your body developed an immunological response and it's in your bloodstream. But it doesn't mean this test is only for presence. So it doesn't measure like how many antibodies are in your bloodstream. So it's not saying, oh, you are protected or not. It's just saying you've had COVID at some time. It could have been an asymptomatic case that you never knew about. You could have had COVID three times or one time. It just means you've had COVID at least once, and it does not include people who are vaccinated. So it means you actually have the natural antibodies, not the vaccine antibodies. Yeah, and that's, you know, really interesting when we start talking about things like herd immunity and, and whatnot. Obviously, early on when vaccines were starting to roll out, they said they wanted to get about 75% of people vaccinated so we can get to that herd immunity number. Obviously, that we didn't reach those numbers, but that coupled with people getting natural immunity, are we seeing more protection out there? In this study only looks at natural an- immune antibodies. There's a separate study that looked at it whether you had either natural immunity antibodies or vaccine antibodies. That study, as of November, found that over 90% of adults had reinfections. Big wave of COVID was last year around December, January. And then six months later is when the giant Delta wave appeared. And then six months later is when the giant Omicron wave appeared. So it turns out that having had one of those infections in winter of 2021 didn't really prevent you from getting COVID or the previous ones didn't really help you when Omicron came. And unfortunately, even vaccines, especially if the vaccine or the booster was more than five or six months ago, offers less protection than a fresh one does. So that idea of herd immunity, they're not even talking about that anymore because COVID's ability to do reinfections for people who've had an infection or breakthrough infections for people who've had vaccines have really kind of made herd immunity not very relevant. One of the other things that we saw throughout this study is that children, the majority of children have had COVID also. And, you know, when we're talking about things like school policies and max mandates and all that stuff, a lot of kids have already come down with it. Yes, that was definitely one of the most interesting things that I saw in this new data. With Omicron and so many additional cases in Omicron, now the data estimates that 58% of children in this country have had it. And interestingly, they actually break it out two ways, age 0 to 11, they were 58%, and age 12 to 17, they were 58%. So it's not like it's just older kids have it or just younger Pretty consistently through the kid age groups, the vast majority, well, 58 is a a majority. I don't know if it's a vast majority, but a majority of the kids have had COVID. And there's a few. And then in young adults or youngish adults from 18 to 49, they are just under a majority. They were, uh, I think, 48% have had it. So what the pattern shows is that a lot of the efforts to prevent getting COVID were focused on the older people that are most vulnerable to getting very sick and dying. And so they have a much lower infection rate because there's been more vaccination, more social distancing, and quite frankly, because a lot of the older people are more frightened, more mask wearing and things. But as you get younger, you get people that are either working jobs where they don't have a choice of social distancing or going to school and lower vaccination rates for younger adults and for kids. So between all that, the kids have had a much higher 
infection rate. And while there have been deaths among children, and that is very tragic, the death rate for children is much, much, much lower than it is for people, say, age 75 and older, who are the majority of the people who've died from COVID. So uh, most of the kids who get it do not have that serious of a case. And that's why 58% of kids can have had it. And yet it's not considered, you know, mostly a disease for young people. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in this. We also saw that at least half of the population in 14 states have been infected, looking at Wisconsin, half of the people in Georgia. So a lot, a lot of numbers there. Dan Keating, health reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Something a little lighter. The office romance might have made a comeback and happened all over Zoom. Two years of isolation led to many more connections over video chats and Slack chats with coworkers. Even for frontline workers, smaller social circles meant spending more time and falling for your fellow employee. For more on how workplace love bloomed despite being at home during the pandemic, we'll speak to Callum Borschers, on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. I thought that this you know, socially distanced pandemic period might finally drive a stake into the office romance, which was kind of on the wane anyway. I mean, think about the, the backdrop, right? You know, in the mid 90s, according to some very good research from Stanford, something like one in five couples met through work. But that number went way down. It was like half of that by 2017, because as you just said, you had Tinder, eHarmony, people were dating online. And then you had the Me Too movement, which even further put a damper on office romances because people probably very wisely got a little bit more cautious about mixing the professional with the personal. So that's how we went into the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, you you're can't be making eyes at the person in the next cubicle over because you're not sitting together. So I figured that we would see a significant drop. And in fact, we saw the opposite. The Society for Human Resource Management has, has chronicled an uptick in dating among coworkers during the past two years. I guess they said a third of workers said they have, they were or have been involved with a colleague. And that was done in January, that thing. So these are relationships that were happening over the pandemic closures and whatnot. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the couples that you spoke to that went through this. Well, you know, sort of the classic example that I think a lot of folks might relate to is uh, is a couple I have uh, near the top of my story, Gregory Kelly and Marwa Rizki. These were folks who were just friends before the pandemic. They used to sort of pop into each other's office and, you know, chit chat. And then when they got sent home, like all of us did, or many of us did, they used FaceTime to sort of simulate, you know, popping into each other's office for a casual chat. And then being separated sort of awakened stronger feelings and each realized like, oh, maybe I, uh, I feel something a little bit stronger. And they got together in a very pandemic style fashion. You know, so Greg, he was texting an, a, another colleague and confessing uh, via text, oh, I think I'm falling in love with Marwa. And this colleague knows the crush is mutual and she screenshots the text message, sends it to Marwa, who's now aware of what's going on and the two of them get together they started with sort of uh you know outdoor walks you know and then finally progressed to indoor dates but i mean think about that right i mean you you get together through facetime and screenshots and outdoor outdoor walks i mean this was the pandemic period that we were in and very much still in high school right you needed that friend to pass along that text message for it all to come together that's Uh, right it's exactly like uh, somebody passing a note uh, note in class yeah but but i love the way you put it the covid era courtship ensued right the video chats then the walks all that stuff and uh now they're they're moved in right are they getting married something like that they're they're all they're all in 
they are all they actually recently got married so they have already tied the knot i talked to a couple of other folks who were getting closer i talked to a couple in upstate new york they had started dating before the pandemic and then the pandemic made them more serious and they're now engaged and so that's another layer of this i think there were some folks who you know you don't know how how serious something is going to be some people just sort of casually date people in the office but i think what happened with a lot of folks is if they didn't want to be you know quarantining alone at the outset of the pandemic and so these two were kind of in lockdown together and and matt zaluki the guy in the relationship told me you know that those early months in lockdown really solidified that uh, my now fiance kaylee was was the one for me and so so he ended up proposing that summer they've sort of been waiting on the wedding to get to more normal time so they're going to get hitched uh, this fall and i tell you one other thing too it's not even just the office workers i think that's primarily right what I was interested in, but some of these frontline workers who didn't have the option to work from home bonded in a really tough experience. So I, I talked to a grocery clerk in Missouri who fit that category. You know, she, her boyfriend of the past year, they recently celebrated an anniversary together. She told me, look, I, I, we worked together for six years before we had our first date. I thought he was super weird. They were they were not a couple before the <laughs> pandemic. But then, you know, everybody's social circle kind of shrinks. You spend more time with people at work. They're kind of in your bubble. And she came to really kind of love yeah. his personality and his <laughs> kindness. And so now they are together. That's great. And, and I appreciate the fact that you included the frontline workers, too, because this is the other subset that, you know, doesn't get talked about very often. You did mention Me Too and other kind of office things concerns that could happen. There was an interesting poll that said basically three quarters of workers don't have a problem with people dating each other at work, but 77% of them do try to hide those relationships. You know, is this a problem for HR, things like that? I know as long as you're disclosing certain things, it's not usually an issue. Right. But this is such an important part of the story. And I think that it's that concealing the relationship that is so telling. Right. So you get three quarters of people saying, well, in theory, I got no problem with it. But roughly that same number hides it if they are involved with a colleague. And I think that tells you that people feel like there's something potentially problematic or they're a little a little squirmy about it. And that is partly because of HR policies, although several HR chiefs have told us that this doesn't really rank among their top concerns right now because they're dealing with the great resignation and COVID vaccination. Yeah, bigger problems. Any number. <laughs> yeah, they got other things higher on their list. The thing that will always set off alarm bells, I was emphasized by HR folks, though, is a power imbalance. So if you've got one partner who has professional authority over the other, that can be a real problem. But there is some concern about, you know, whether companies maybe are taking their eye off the ball a little bit when it comes to, you know, potentially problematic co-worker romances. And I think something to keep an eye on as we go forward is we've got office returns and then other companies that are not maybe bringing everybody back into the office, but they're going to do more like offsite retreats and stuff, right? So, okay, you can work remotely, but then we're going to get together for long weekends together to have like bonding sessions. And we know from the Me Too movement that that sometimes those are the types of environments where trouble can arise. So it's something to keep an eye on. Despite all the isolation we had during the pandemic, love still bloomed in a lot of ways. So uh, just a, a fun little story there. Callum Borscher's on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.